Well, welcome back to Decarb Connects podcast. I am joined today by Neil Chatterjee, former commissioner of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, which I guess most people will know quite simply as FERC, and now a senior advisor at Hogan Lovells in the area of energy and regulation as well. So Neil, welcome to our podcast. I mean, you're bringing loads of experience with you, both as background as a lawyer, you've worked in policy and regulation and been an advisor to people like Senator Mitch McConnell. Maybe maybe you could kick off by just painting a bit of a picture about your background and I guess how you've arrived at this point in time. You know, how, how does this kind of come together so that you're now at a point where you are uh, talking about decarbonisation with me and uh, energy and regulation with others? Just a bit, a bit on your background. Yeah, I appreciate it. And thank you for having me on the podcast. Uh, by way of background, uh, I've spent the bulk of my career working in the federal legislative branch in the U.S., uh, in serving in both the United States House of Representatives uh, as an energy policy advisor and then uh, in the United States Senate, specifically as the principal energy policy advisor to the Senate uh, Republican leader, Senator Mitch McConnell of Kentucky, uh, my home state in the US and uh, through that experience uh, was able to gain an opportunity with Senator McConnell's support uh, to uh, take a seat at the US Federal Energy Regulatory Commission where I served for four years as both a commissioner and chairman. Uh, During that time, uh, I made very clear that uh, despite the fact that I was a Republican uh, from Kentucky who Uh, worked for a coal state center and was appointed chairman of FERC by President Trump, that I believe climate change was real, that man had a significant impact, and that we needed to urgently take steps to mitigate emissions, but that I didn't believe in overreaching regulations or subsidies or mandates, and that my strong preference was for a market-based approach to decarbonization Uh, And I'm uh, proud of some of the actions that FERC took during my tenure uh, to move the U.S. power markets in a direction that I think will benefit consumers, will maintain reliability and affordability, and will also continue to put us on a path to squeeze carbon out of the U.S. power sector. I'm sure the majority of our listeners know very well what the work of FERC is, but just in brief, can you just sort of give give an overview of, you know, what is it that FERC does? And I mean, bluntly, the last few years in particular, the work of folk must have really seen a lot more discussion and debate around climate and decarbonisation. So perhaps a little on the work of FERC and, and how that, that, that kind of climate debate has been playing into the organisation. So FERC is principally an economic market regulator. I think at the end of the day, the foremost responsibility that I took as chairman and my colleagues took as uh, as commissioners is our oversight of the reliability of the grid. We want to make sure that when Americans hit the switch, that the lights come on. In that vein, uh, for uh, working with another organization called NERC, um, Overseas Reliability Standards, the commission also has the jurisdiction to oversee the U.S.'s competitive wholesale power markets, as well as playing an integral role in evaluating applications for energy infrastructure like natural gas pipelines and liquefied natural gas export facilities. We also, uh, the commission also um, uh, reviews hydro licenses and sets ROEs and provides incentives for transmission. It's really the principal 
energy regulatory body in the U.S. It's an independent agency with a bipartisan configuration, which speaks to the significant role that FERC plays in America's energy landscape. When it comes to something as important as the reliability of the grid, uh, you don't want politics interfering with the critical decision making that a quasi-judicial organization like FERC has to make. Now, how climate has come into the uh, forefront, FERC is not an environmental regulator, but increasingly uh, questions around carbon and carbon mitigation and climate are touching everything in the energy policy landscape. And so FERC uh, has to be cognizant of the shifting legal and policy landscape. Uh, the commission has to deal with changes uh, in, in, in certain approaches at other agencies. And then uh, the courts have called into question FERC's own role uh, in the carbon space. And so uh, it is something that is now very much a part of the discussion uh, at the commission. I wonder if you could tell me, I mean, I know I read a little, for example, about distributed energy. I've read a little about the uh, kind of statement that FERC produced encouraging state-based transmission to include carbon pricing within their markets. Maybe you could highlight one or two of the things that you really think that FERC has got in its grip at the moment that really kind of can relate to and drive the power sector's route to decarbonization in the states. Yeah, I'll focus on three uh, areas, uh, actions that the commission took while I was chairman that I think were significant uh, in moving the, the U.S. grid in, the, in that direction. Uh, the first is an order that was uh, originally put forward in the spring of 2018. Uh, it was FERC order number 841. And what it did was it removed barriers to entry for energy storage technologies. Uh, energy storage now has the ability in U.S. power markets to be compensated for all of its attributes for capacity, for energy, and for ancillary services. And I thought that was uh, uh, an important milestone and, and decision to make. Uh, it wasn't a regulation or a mandate. It was simply allowing these technologies uh, to compete and to be compensated. And, and my belief is that by removing barriers to entry, uh, these technologies will flourish and uh, uh, it'll, uh, you know, innovation will come to bear and uh, competition uh, will drive uh, cost discipline as well as uh, accelerate deployment of these technologies. And so that was a landmark order. We built on that order in the fall of 2020 by finalizing FERC order 2222. This was something that I was particularly proud of. It removed barriers to entry for aggregated distributed energy resources. Here, you can think electric vehicles, uh, advanced appliances, rooftop solar, with the basic idea being one electric vehicle owner doesn't have the capacity to influence power markets. But if through the power of technology and aggregation, if we can harness the power of thousands and thousands of electric vehicle owners, uh, then suddenly you're competing with the power plant down the street and able to deliver power at the deliver power at the source, and and I think this, if properly implemented, really could fundamentally alter the way that Americans generate, distribute, and consume power. And it's really exciting. And if in making this power market reform, we can simultaneously encourage the accelerated deployment of electric vehicles. 
then you have the potential to capacity to not only further decarbonize the power sector, but to drive down emissions in the transportation sector as well. Uh, so I'm very, very proud of the, uh, of the work we did there. And then finally, you mentioned uh, the uh, initial proposed policy statement uh, on carbon pricing, which was finalized while I was still on the commission in 2021. Um, if uh, uh, you believe some of the reporting, my role in putting forward the draft policy statement on carbon pricing is what led to my demotion as chairman by President Trump two days after the election. Um, but that's okay. I, I stand by what we did. In my view, when compared with the options that were there, uh, a market-based price on carbon that is transparent and can lead to accurate pricing signals is a vastly superior approach to, to market design than subsidies or mandates or regulations. And we are confronted with an issue in the US where in the absence of federal guidance on carbon mitigation, states are taking actions upon themselves to decarbonize. The problem is when you have a multi-state market, some of those state actions can have a detrimental impact on, on proper market functioning. And to me, I want to keep states in the markets. I think should states drop out of the markets that would harm US consumers, the economy and the environment. Uh, and I wanna do the best job possible to harmonize state policies and proper market functioning and I felt that a price on carbon was the right approach to do so. And I'm optimistic that uh, a region in the US will come forward with a price on carbon to the commission in the coming years. And if it's found to be just and reasonable and that market were to move forward, that region were to move forward and demonstrate success in implementing a price on carbon, that could lead to other regions following a similar roadmap and has a lot of exciting possibilities. And so um, that's my long-winded way of saying that I'm rather proud of my record. I'm wondering if you can see other things on the horizon that you think those three decisions or three kind of courses of action, if you like, do they open up other discussions or other opportunities that perhaps otherwise wouldn't have got a look in? Yeah, potentially so. Um, I think, you know, uh, part of the the opportunity and intrigue is in the fact that, you know, look, we don't know what, what where innovation uh, will take us. And I think uh, in FERC order 22, 22 in particular, uh, we, we left in some flexibility um, with an understanding that we may not be fully cognizant of what technologies may be able to come to bear uh, in the future. And we wanted that flexibility. And my hope is that in all of these regards, as we see markets incorporate these policies um, and, and, you know, we need to make iterative changes uh, from these policies uh, to continue to properly align markets. Um, that's how it works. You know, uh, uh, FERC orders build upon other FERC orders. Uh, and I do hope that uh, we've laid a pretty good foundation with, uh, with these rules and uh, that as uh, they are implemented and they will be implemented differently and, and complied with differently in different markets and different regions, um, we will see additional opportunities and potentially obstacles as well emerge. And, uh, and the commission uh, uh, working with the region, uh, regional grid operators uh, will address those in the future. Let's come back to the, the carbon pricing then and just why it is that you see carbon pricing or some form of that as a mechanism state by state as, as an advantage. Just what's your perspective on the win of that? It's transparent. And 
that to me is is the key. Uh, in in other instances, what is happening now is individual states are subsidizing their preferred sources of generation, and in doing so, are effectively you know hiding the costs of that generation, and it's it's altering uh, the dispatch stack. And so, in a multi-state market, if state A is pursuing uh, certain policy objectives that state D doesn't necessarily support, but state D's resources, uh, its generators aren't getting dispatched uh, because they're losing out to state A's subsidized resources. That to me is a, a, a distortion that uh, alters the, the efficient functioning of markets. Uh, whereas rather than hiding those costs in the form of a subsidy, you have a transparent price on carbon, which I made very clear FERC would not be in a position to oversee, implement, or collect. It would be handled by stakeholders within the respective RTO or ISO region. Uh, that to me is just a far more effective way to mitigate emissions than uh, the current approach, which is relying heavily uh, on subsidies or you know, state mandates or state regulations. Since this discussion, this uh, statement was produced, is it playing out as you had hoped or thought? Uh, I think uh, in all likelihood, uh, the New York independent system operator is probably the furthest along. And so uh, I, my suspicion is uh, that ISO will be the first to come to the commission with a proposal to incorporate uh, a price on carbon. Uh, and we'll see where it goes from there. Um, but uh, certainly it's, it's, it's uh, led to a, a conversation uh, at the commission uh, and nationally uh, on, on carbon pricing. Um, you saw a price on carbon at least contemplated uh, in, in, in Congress uh, here in the past uh, few months in the U.S. And uh, look, e economists across the political spectrum agree that if you believe climate change is real and we mitigate, need to mitigate emissions, that it's the smartest way to do it. But there's no question that it's challenging politically. And, uh, and so uh, I'm under no illusions that mm -hmm. it will happen overnight or easily. But I do sense that at least uh, 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 at the, you know, kind of power market level, there's some interest in pursuing these policies. What's your personal view on some of the either industrial or political triggers that kind of are needed in the debate to come up next? My personal view is we need to make energy policy boring again politics has in, invaded energy policy to where now energy decisions are no longer being made by engineers and economists. They're being made by political actors uh, who may not necessarily have, you know, uh, the expertise nor the, the understanding of what it takes to maintain the reliability of the grid. And so uh, I do think we need to carefully move forward. I think we need to uh, address the realities of climate change and, and, and uh, make the necessary adjustments to mitigate emissions. But we need to do so in a way that maintains reliability and affordability and also recognizes the sensitivities in certain communities. Look, I have seen firsthand in Kentucky the, the devastation that occurs in communities when the coal plants shut down and the mines that feed them shut down, most employment in those communities is tied directly or indirectly to the coal industry. And uh, oftentimes people in these uh, regions are faced with a choice of either moving and leaving uh, the only home they've ever known 
uh, or staying uh, on government assistance. And the only asset that they have oftentimes is their home and their home loses all value because no one wants to move to an area without hope for economic prosperity. And, and we can't just gloss over that, you know, there are victims in the energy transition. And so it's just, it it will require a serious, uh, a serious focus and consideration. And I think to the extent that we can take the politics out of it, focus on the human element to it while letting the engineers and the economists design the grid that will best enable us to transition to carbon-free generation without compromising reliability. That's my, that, that's my hope. And I'm rather optimistic that we will be able to achieve that. What's the timeline, do you think, to the U.S. or a large majority of the U.S. having access to a, a reliable grid driven by clean energy? Yeah, look, I'm not a big proponent of, uh, of these deadlines of putting data. We need X reduction by 2030, X reduction by 2050. I remember the, uh, you know, I was working in Congress in, in 2009 when cap and trade legislation was being pushed by the Obama administration at the time. And there was a bill that was uh, drafted by uh, uh, Congressman Waxman and Markey that um, I, I believe called for like a 17% reduction in emissions by 2020. It was never enacted, and yet we blasted past those projected uh, um, emissions reductions in that bill. And so to me, you know, uh, the market and market forces have outperformed what legislators thought was possible when they were crafting these policies, you know, uh, uh, more than a decade ago. And so uh, uh, to me, focusing on these smart market-based solutions, designing a grid that will remain reliable in the face of the energy transition and all this change, uh, let's focus there. And I do believe the emissions, uh, as the business case for clean energy continues to improve every day, as the costs come down, as consumers, everyone from Fortune 50 companies to small businesses to individual households are now more aware of their energy consumption and and are interested in uh, cleaner sources of energy and decarbonizing. Uh, With those market forces at bear, I am confident that we are on a a trajectory uh, to continue to reduce emissions. And, uh, you know, I'm not a big proponent of putting timelines on it. I also think we have a great story to tell here in the U.S. We are the global leader in emissions reductions. I believe our emissions reductions surpass the next 11 countries' emissions reductions combined. And so uh, uh, I think we are doing a good job in the U.S. We can always do better. uh, And I'm confident that uh, uh, these market-driven forces uh, with with, uh, proper guidance from engineers and economists will get us there of interest, we're recording this on what is effectively, what, day two of COP26. I'm interested in what what do you make of that meeting and what do you hope or expect to see from it? Not much. And uh, and I think it's unfortunate and I think it's a missed opportunity. Uh, Sadly, what I was mentioning before was that, you know, energy has kind of become politicized in the U.S. And I think one of the big mistakes that has been made is that, um, you know, the advocacy around climate change and carbon mitigation um, has become polarized and tied to other issues unrelated to uh, climate change and carbon mitigation. And it's almost uh, seen as, as, as a political exercise. So you're not getting bipartisan cooperation. And the end result is uh, the president, uh, 
is now going to COP26 almost completely empty-handed. He was able to get a commitment to put a clean energy, uh, clean electricity performance program into the the uh, reconciliation bill, which in and of itself is a partisan vehicle in the U.S. designed to move without cooperation from uh, the Senate minority. Uh, there's no price on carbon. Um, you know, state policies are, are you know, running into, uh, you know, complicated market-based challenges. And even um, federal administrative efforts to, uh, uh, to put forward rem- uh, regulations are likely to be challenged by the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court just took up a pretty significant case on the EPA's authority to, to regulate carbon emissions. And so the reason all of this is happening and that the president is going to Glasgow with basically only tax incentives to show is because they haven't, the administration hasn't engaged Republicans in this dialogue. They've attempted to pursue these policies in a partisan manner. And look, I'm a Republican that's sitting here talking about climate change, and there are others like me who want to have this discussion, including elected representatives in the United States Senate and the House of Representatives. I think uh, we'd be far better off bringing folks to the table in a bipartisan way than continuing to uh, to politicize and, and, and approach climate change uh, from this partisan vantage point. And uh, uh, I think, sadly, that is why uh, not much productive is likely to come out of, uh, of this uh, two-week meeting in Glasgow. Our perspective at Decarb Connect, I think we really ex- are hoping and expecting that maybe this is almost the handoff point between governments apparently leading the conversation, actually industry and finance, coming together to really step up with their own commitments and roots forward. I guess we will see. Look, one of the organizations, I'm, I'm uh, at a senior advisor at Hogan Lovells. I'm also serving as senior advisor to a group called the Climate Leadership Council. And if you look at who are the members of the Climate Leadership Council, some of the biggest companies on the planet, uh, including some of the largest oil companies on the planet, and they're determined to lead on carbon mitigation. And so, yes, I, I, I do think that we are, you know, potentially to a point where we need to pass the baton from governments, which, you know, uh, are, are foiled by, by partisan politics to the private sector and to industry. And, uh, and I have confidence that uh, industry will step up and lead uh, in this regard if handed the baton. Yeah, well, and bluntly, we also reward industry and companies more for long term thinking, planning and execution than we do for governments. I think you're right. So, so you mentioned the Climate Leadership Council. So just um, in brief, then you're now in this new role at Hogan Lovell. What kinds of discussions are you hoping to take part in? Yeah, so uh, one of the reasons uh, I chose Hogan Lovells is, uh, you know, they're a, it's a global firm uh, with a presence uh, in Washington, D.C. and in the U.K. with offices all around the world. Um, they've got an outstanding energy regulatory practice. And obviously I wanted to go somewhere where I could build upon the experience and expertise that I had uh, at FERC, but they've also got a strong uh, public policy and government relations uh, division. And you know, I've still got fantastic relationships uh, as well as process know-how and substantive know-how on federal legislative matters. And I've got you know uh, relationships on both sides of the aisle, on both sides of the Capitol in the US. And I wanted to go somewhere where I could build upon that experience And then finally, um, one of the things that was a real pleasant surprise to me when I came to FERC, I did not recognize how many international opportunities would be made available to me when I took a seat at a domestic energy market regulator. 
What I came to very quickly learn was that in the 21st century, no country is on an island anymore when it comes to energy policy. And the U.S.'s allies pay very close attention to market issues and, and market design issues and, and, and the power sector in the U.S. And so I had a wonderful uh, uh, array of opportunities to engage with our allies from South America to Southeast Asia to Western Europe and beyond. And uh, going to a firm with a global reputation and presence like Hogan Levels will give me the opportunity to engage really in all three of those areas, energy regulatory, federal legislative, and in the international area as well. And I hope to be able to uh, contribute value across those fronts. Well, thanks for joining me today, Neil. We always want to bring in different political viewpoints, but bluntly, someone who can also point some different directions of travel to get to the same outcome, i.e. better climate policy, better climate action, but through these different routes. So thanks very much. Appreciate the opportunity. Uh, appreciate you uh, hearing me out. And uh, really enjoyed the discussion and uh, I look forward to continuing to engage on these matters because it's important. Uh, that's, uh, that's why I wanted to get on this podcast. That's why I appreciate all the work you do uh, and, uh, and uh, really uh, uh, privileged to be part of the discussion today. Great. Thanks, Neil. Many thanks for listening to the Decarb Connect podcast. We work with clients across the industrial sectors specifically those who are tasked with decarbonizing the most energy intensive products and materials that we use every day. If you have an interest in uh, learning more about either our members network, our reports or our event series, do get in touch with us at decarbconnect.com. Or if you'd like to take part in the podcast, email me, alex at ac at decarbconnect.com. Thanks for listening.